sometimes of how long we've been in certain books and stuff. And I know that we did uh, Old Testament, we did Ecclesiastes, I know we did the book of Esther, and I believe we also did Ezra and Nehemiah. So I can go back that far of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Ecclesiastes. So we've been in the Old Testament on Wednesday nights for quite some time. So it's kind of fun to get back into the New Testament. But with that being said, and I was doing some study in preparation for this message tonight, one commentator said there's over 500 Old Testament allusions in the book of Revelation. I heard a teaching one time saying if you're going to really do the book of Revelation right, you will probably make a stop in every single book of the Bible. This is the final piece, if you will, of what we have here of going in the final revelation of what the Lord wanted to give to us and wanted to share with us. We last taught through Revelation, I think it was back uh, about six years ago in 2011. And as we get a little bit farther in the book, we see more prophecy being fulfilled. It's a lot of information. If you've never studied out the book of Revelation before and you're assuming that you're just going to jump right in to this idea of end times prophecy, antichrist, number of the beast, etc., you'll get to all that. Chapter 1 introduces us to who Jesus is. Chapters 2 and 3 tell us about the churches. Chapter 4, you get a scene into heaven. Chapter 5, a scene into heaven. And chapter 6, you finally start getting into these prophecies and what the tribulation period will look like there as well. Hey, Dustin, did that uh, PowerPoint come through? Did not come through. I just want to let you know I had the most amazing PowerPoint you've ever seen. It would have changed your life. It would have changed your life. Um, I think thousands of people would have got saved tonight if we just had the PowerPoint going on. With that being said, let's jump into this. Let's talk about, first off, the word revelation. Because if you look right here in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Understand what this means. Revelation is where we get the word apocalypse. Now, usually when you hear the word apocalypse, that's what the Greek is for that. You start thinking of something, like, really bad. The apocalypse is coming. Well, apocalypse just literally means unveiling. So from the first passage of this book... From the first passage of this book, you see that it's the unveiling of who Jesus Christ is. That's what this book is about. And as you go through this book, and if you study this book with us, you're going to come out with such a deep understanding of who Jesus is. There is so much about who Christ is in this book. So this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of who Jesus is, and it really reveals to us who Christ is. I had a couple of pictures I was going to show you tonight in that, in that PowerPoint. And the first one is the classic picture of Jesus. And he's wearing the white robe with the blue sash. He's got a little lamb around his neck. And that's what we envision Christ. The next picture I was going to show you is the interpretation of Jesus Christ returning in Revelation 19, riding the white horse to come destroy the world. And that's what Revelation is also revealing to you. See, when you see Christ... You have to understand both sides. He is the Messiah that loves you and His grace and mercy saves you from sin. But He is also the conquering King that is coming back to reclaim this world. And that's what Revelation is about. And judgment will come with that as well. Who is He trying to tell this to? Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants, us. This book is written to us. Jesus wants us to know who he is and what his role is and what the future foretolds for this. Things which must shortly take place. Now you may be thinking Revelation was written 2,000 years ago. How is this shortly taking place? A couple things on that. I heard a teaching one time, and I've never forgotten it, where the pastor said that he believes that every generation feels like they could be the last generation. Because that's supposed to spur you on. First John says that we're supposed to constantly be thinking about Jesus returning. And the Bible says, therefore, we're not going to be ashamed at his coming. I use this analogy a lot. If you knew someone was coming over to your house, if I knew someone was coming to my house, and I didn't know what time they were coming, 
We would be in a constant state of keeping the house picked up. Because you want it to look good when they get there. We're hosting a small group at our house uh, Mondays. And so we have nine people, you know, living in our house right now. We start, don't start cleaning until about 6.30. The Bible study starts at 7. Because as soon as you clean one room, guess what's going to happen? The house will look good at 7. It will look good from 7 to 8. And from that point on, I can't guarantee anything. So I get it cleaned at that point. Now, if you said, James, I'm coming over and I can't wait to see your house. And you said, I'm going to come over tomorrow. What time? Oh, I don't know. I'll just show up. Boy, I would have to have the house ready all the time, right? I would have to live in an expectancy of you coming at any moment. See, if the Bible came and said, don't worry, Jesus is not coming for another 500 years, we'd sit here and say, well, as long as I don't die unexpectedly, I should be okay. With us having this constant thought of Christ could return at any moment. And when we get into this in the next couple of weeks, i got a handout I'm going to give you that has a biblical timeline where it talks about the second coming, the rapture, the tribulation, etc. It makes us live in an expectancy that truly at any moment he could return. As far as I can tell from reading the Bible, there are no prophecies left to be taken care of before Jesus returns. So we live in an expectancy of him coming. So he is coming shortly. Now this word shortly is a really interesting word as well. This is where we get our word for tachometer. If any of you people here are car people, you know what a tachometer is. It shows you the RPMs of the engine. And as you rev your engine, that little thing goes up. That's the idea here. This idea of he's coming quickly, shortly, he's coming soon, swiftly. It's like an engine revving. You can see it coming and you're getting prepared. You're getting ready for it. And as we get into the prophecy part of the book of Revelation, especially Matthew chapter 24, he says, listen, I don't want this to be an unexpected thing for you guys. I'm giving you enough signs. He uses this term, labor pains, to know that the child is coming, to know that the end is coming. So he sent and signified it by his angel to a servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. So this book is written by John. We'll get into him in a little bit. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Please note in verse 3, you are blessed being here tonight. You are blessed because this book promises a blessing. Blessed the who read it, those who hear it, and then those who keep it. Now think about that. Blessed those who read it, those who hear it, and then most importantly, those who keep it. Depending on your translation, those who take it to heart, those who obey it. James chapter 1 says, do not just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. I think we talked about this last Wednesday. You know, we have a lot of people that are willing to underline verses. They're underlining the word. They'll memorize the word. They'll talk about the word. But God says, I want people to do the word. So you may be looking at verse 3 saying, hey, I'm blessed by reading it. I'm blessed by hearing it. Yeah, but let's be blessed by doing it, by keeping it, by obeying it, by taking it to heart. Now listen, I don't want to get all pastoral dramatic here, but this is the honest, goodness truth. There is a heaven and there is a hell. Every single individual is going to spend eternity in heaven or hell. So therefore, friends, neighbors, loved ones, co-workers, fellow students that you know are not saved, as you read through this book, I hope it spurs you on to say, I want to present the truth of the gospel to them. Because if they die right now, or if the rapture would happen right now, this book is going to tell me what they're going to go through. If they die right now as an unsaved person, this book shows me what hell is like. 
If they would happen to miss the rapture, this book shows me that for seven years of tribulation, it will be hell on earth. It's an awful, horrible thing. And I hope that we're spurred on to say, I know the truth. I see the end. I've read the end. Now I want to go represent that. And I hope that spurs you on. And I remember hearing a pastor's conference years ago, those that most want to share the gospel are the ones most touched by the gospel. When you really understand what Jesus Christ has done for you, it spurs you on to go represent that to other people. And so let's read about what Jesus has done for us. Verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. This is John, the apostle John, brother of James. He was known as the beloved disciple. He wrote John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John in the book of Revelation. So five books of the New Testament written by him. Church tradition teaches us that he's the one that lived the oldest up into probably his 90s. And so he's the one writing this book. He's writing it to the seven churches which are in Asia. If you would look at a map, it's really not Asia like we think of. It's more of Asia Minor, Turkey. And those seven churches, if you're wondering about, that's what chapters 2 and 3 are about. So we'll get to that here next week. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priest as God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's quite a little introduction there. A lot of stuff in here. Let's break it down. First off, verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him. You've got to have grace and peace. Everybody in the world wants peace. You want to go to bed at night and not worry about things. You want peace where you don't have that turmoil, that trouble on your heart and on your soul. The way to truly have peace is you've got to have grace. See, grace is this idea of God giving you something that you don't deserve. We do not deserve entrance into heaven. We do not deserve salvation. So God gives us through his grace. Grace literally means a gift. He gives us the gift of salvation. Once I have the gift of salvation, I have peace. Yeah, but what about... What compares to heaven? Paul says in Corinthians that anything we go through, anything we go through on this world is a light momentary affliction. Now, even if you carry that light momentary affliction to your grave, you will wake up in heaven and it's gone. It's temporary. It is temporary compared to eternity. So when you walk in grace, you come home from work and it's a bad day, you stop and realize, wait a second, I have a home in heaven waiting for me. If you're struggling with something physically, you stop and you say, well, wait a second. When I'm in heaven, the Bible says all disease, tears, pain, and sickness will be gone. If you've lost a loved one and you know where they're at in Jesus Christ, you mourn on this earth. But you say, well, wait a second. Through God's grace, I know where that person is. And through God's grace, I will see them again. So therefore, I have peace. So whatever you're going through, when you know Jesus Christ and you are saved, and you're walking in His grace, you can have peace, because all that matters is eternity. Now, who's this from? From who is, and who was, and who is to come. That's a wonderful definition of God. Hey, I want to I try to teach you something here tonight, and I hope that you, that you hear it, and you're going to chew on it for a while. I don't expect you to get it right tonight. God is not under a time frame or timetable like we are. Everything we do goes by time. Everything we do goes by time. Church tonight starts at 7. It ends at 8. You're going to go home. You're going to go to bed. Many of you have to get up and go to work tomorrow. You will set an alarm clock, and your time will dictate what you do. And so what happens is we constantly think about this. Everything is time. 
God is constantly trying to tell us God is not under that type of burden of time. He is, according to verse 4, who is and who was and who is to come. We are doing devotions the other night with the boys. And, and my younger ones, it's a tough concept. Okay, Dad, when we get to heaven, what are we going to do all the time? Well, buddy, there is no time in heaven. What do you mean there's no time? There's no time. So, I mean, like, what are we going to do on a regular day? Yeah, there's no sun in heaven. Book of Revelation tells me that. So, heaven does not have that time frame like we think of. Well, next thing it knows is, well, when did God create the heavens and the earth? Well, I think the Bible teaches God created the heavens and earth about 6,000 years ago. Well, what did he do before that? Yeah, it's not like he just sat up there looking at his watch, you know, waiting to, to create the heavens and the earth. He's not under time like we're under time. He created time. If you go back and read in Genesis, he gave us the sun and moon for our purposes for seasons and time. He doesn't need that. And so when you see a verse like this, who is and who was and who is to come, that that is the best way our human mind can grasp this. That God is and always has been and always will be. That's why when Moses asked God in Exodus, who should I say sent me? God's response is, I am that I am. Which is, I just am. I just always have been. I've always existed. There's not a beginning to me. Because I'm not under time. And I don't really know if our minds on this earth can grasp that. Because everything is time to us. It says in Peter that a thousand years is as a day and a day is as a thousand years to the Lord. He's not under the burden that we are. And where is this from? The seven spirits who are before his throne. Alrighty, guys, this is where it gets fun. I'm excited about this. All right, let's go to Isaiah 11. See, you, you have to think from an Old Testament perspective. So any time that John throws these little things out like that, you, you, you hear that, I hear that, and we're like, well, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about Isaiah. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Okay, that's the lineage of Jesus right there. Jesse was David's uh, father and uh, from the tribe of Judah, and Jesus is a descendant of King David. Now look at verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. If you're good at math, if you look at verse 2, there's the sevenfold spirit right there. That is the fullness. Now, this is where we get into a little bit of numerology. Now, what numerology is the study of numbers in the Bible. Now, really, really, one more really, really be careful with numerology, okay? Don't take it to utter extremes. I know people that do that, and if you give them any number, they'll find some crazy idea that goes with it. Certain things, though, are so obvious you can't get away from it. The number seven in the Bible is one of those numbers. I just started making a list of everything I could think of that has the number seven in the Bible, and I actually stopped making it because the list just keeps going on. There are seven days, seven letters, seven churches, seven years of tribulation. There are the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, the seven bowl judgments. There's the seven days in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On Day of Atonement, they sprinkled the blood seven times on the altar. There were seven pairs of clean animals that Noah took on the ark. We can just keep going on, and that's not all the sevens in the Bible. So when you start looking at all those sevens, what does that seem to represent? Most people think that represents a completion. 
They sprinkled the blood seven times. The sacrifice is complete. There's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowl judgments. The judgment is complete. Seven days of unleavened bread. The feast is complete. So, the seven ministries here of the Spirit, it shows that Jesus is complete. The Holy Spirit is with Him. The Holy Spirit is God. You see that completion there in verse 4, right before the throne. What you're seeing is a glimpse into heaven. The completion of Jesus being God. The Spirit being God. And you see all of this. Isaiah 11, verse 2. Verse 5, now back in Revelation 1. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Boy, that's thrown people for a loop. Firstborn from the dead. That word firstborn, when you really study it out, it does not mean in a numerical order, the firstborn from the dead. It means preeminence. He's the most important person that has ever risen from the dead. There's been other people that have risen from the dead. We see that in the Old Testament. We see that in the New Testament. But Jesus is the firstborn, the preeminence. We use the same terminology now. You know, you know, a few years ago when uh, Michelle Obama was pres- uh, uh, wife of the president there, she was the first lady. Well, she wasn't the first lady. Martha Washington was the first lady. But that's the term we use, Laura Bush. She was the first lady. Well, she wasn't the first. But that's what we know. We're saying at that moment in time, that woman has the place of preeminence. So therefore, this word is saying here that Jesus has the preeminent role. Remember, this book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So what are we learning about Jesus He gives us grace. He gives us peace. He is who was and who is to come. He is the completion of the Spirit. He is the most important person, the preeminent person that raised from the dead. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. He is over everything. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's a powerful statement right there. Who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Book of Revelation is very graphic. It spares no detail. You were washed in the blood of Jesus. Washed in the blood. We got a couple little boys. Uh, you know, we do foster care. They're staying with us now. One's three months old, and one is seventeen months old. And the seventeen-month-old one has a really nasty cold right now. And it's been a few years since I've had a toddler. And I forgot that when they're that age, when they sneeze, they there's no reaction. It just hangs. So it gets within tongue range. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like you guys forgot too. Yeah. So we're constantly chasing him around. Like you hear this sneeze and like everybody yells code red because we got to find this kid because if not, it's getting, it's, it's awful. It's awful. I, I almost can't handle it. It's really bad. I'm glad I'm here tonight. So pray for healing <laughs> miraculously. So when I see verse 5... That Jesus loved me, washed me in his own blood. Please note the order. Loved me, then washed me. That 17-month-old is very lovable. There's not snot coming out of his nose when he's washed. Can we love and then wash? See, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. See, the enemy loves to plant thoughts in our mind that we're not good enough. That's the one time I want to agree with Satan. You're right, I'm not good enough. Thank you for reminding me about Jesus' grace. Because I'm not good enough. He loved me when I was not good enough. He loved me when I was dirty. He loved me when I was in sin. And then he washed me. See, that's amazing to me. 
He loved me, then washed me in his own. And not only loved me and washed me, verse 6, he promoted me to kings and priests. Kings and priests. If you're a note taker, write it down. 1 Peter 1.9 says that we're a royal priesthood. We're going to get to Revelation here at the end. We're born-again believers in Jesus Christ that are part of the church. They get to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. I get to rule and reign with Jesus. Because I get to be part of the king, the kingdom, depending on your translation. And a priest. What's a priest do? The priest is the go-between. Between God and people. I get to represent Jesus Christ to the world. So I'm a royal priesthood. So therefore, when I go meet somebody who's not saved as a representation of Jesus, as an ambassador of God, I get to be the priest to that person to point them towards Jesus Christ. When you really look at your role, that you have been washed, well, first off, loved and washed, promoted to king and priest, why would you not do the end of verse 6? To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What we have learned in the first simple six verses, Jesus has always been, always existed, always will exist. He's given me grace. He's given me peace. He has washed me. He has loved me. He has promoted me. He has given me the kingdom and the priesthood. And I just want to praise him. When you get that, this book all of a sudden is absolutely amazing. So let's just stop right there for a second. Any quick questions, comments, or anything that we've covered so far in the first six verses of uh, Revelation 1? All right, we're good? Okay, let's move on then. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Please remember that from Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended into heaven, and all the disciples were standing there watching him disappear. The angel appeared and said, What are you guys doing? The same way which he left is the same way which he's coming back. He's coming from the clouds. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. We'll get to that later on too. Remember what it says in Philippians. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. As we've said before, there are no atheists in hell. Because they would be proven and shown that Jesus Christ is the Savior. It will be proven when you get through the end of the book of Revelation, there's no doubt that God proves who his son is. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Alpha and the Omega, that's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. So it is, I am the A to the Z, is what he's saying right there. I am the beginning and I am the end. Now, note the repetition of this. Take a look at verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come. Please note the other passages here that go right along with that. Verse 11. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Take a look at verse 17. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Verse 18. I am he who lives and who was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. When you see something like that being repeated three times in one chapter, don't you think they're trying to get a point across? Now, let's build on this. Oh, this is going to be good. Go with me to Isaiah. Isaiah 41. Keep your hand there and keep what we just talked about. You're going to run into a lot of people that like the concept of God. Many, many people like the concept of God. Many false religions, many cults like the concept of God. But they don't like the concept of Jesus. So what happens is we all want to be ecumenical and just get together, sing Kumbaya, and say, well, we all believe in the same God. We just call him by different names. 
Okay, that doesn't work. Because the New Testament makes it clear, if you don't have Jesus, you can't have the Father. So you can't have a relationship with God unless you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me just show you some passages here. Why there is such a repetition in Revelation 1 of those phrases. Take a look here at Isaiah 41. We're going to do three verses here in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 41, verse 4. Who has performed it and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. I, verse 4, I am Jehovah, Lord God Almighty. I am the first and the last. From an Old Testament point of view, we would look at that as Jehovah. Look at that as God. Stay in Isaiah. Go to chapter 44, please. Now, let's take it one step further. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me... There is no God. Now, we just went one step further. I'm the first and the last, and there's no other God but me. One more reference, please. Isaiah 48. Just to repeat this, verse 12 of Isaiah 48. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Three times here in this short little section of Isaiah, Isaiah 41 to 48, Jehovah is telling us that he is God. There is no other God. He's the only God. So we've established that fact. Now when you jump to Revelation 1, you see the same phrases being repeated. But they add a catch. See, take a look at verse 8 back now in Revelation 1. I'm the beginning and the end. Verse 11, I'm the first and the last. Verse 17, I'm the first and the last. You're going to run into some people, they're going to say, yeah, but they're talking about God right there. They're not talking about Jesus, they're talking about Jehovah. Yeah, but then look at verse 8. I am he who lives and who was dead. So did Jehovah die? Jesus died. What are we really doing in Revelation 1? You're making a case from Old Testament to New Testament that Jesus Christ is God. And you're looking at the prophecies in Isaiah to what is confirmed in the book of Revelation. And he's not just he who is dead. Look at verse 18. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus is God. Now, you may be stopping and saying, okay, I didn't really think it was that big a deal to know that Jesus is God. Trust me. The more open you get about your faith, the more open you get about proclaiming the gospel, you're going to run into people that are going to try to tell you that Jesus isn't God. They may tell you he's the first created being. They may tell you that he's a spiritual son of God. They may tell you that he's a spiritual brother to Satan. They may tell you that he was just a good prophet. They may tell you he was just a good man. Depends on what group you go talk to. Revelation is telling me he's God. And that's the important part about this. Because the only way I can have a righteous sacrifice for my sins is I have to have a righteous man do the sacrificing. And it has to be Jesus Christ. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Once again, that PowerPoint that would have saved now tens of thousands of people, there was a map of uh, where Patmos was. It's off Greece there, a little bit off Asia Minor. Patmos nowadays, if you look it up, you're going to say, wow, John, you had it good. Uh, Patmos has become a tourist destination because that's where John was when he wrote the book of Revelation. If you rewind 2,000 years ago, Patmos was not the place that you want to go. This is where they put prisoners that they didn't want to deal with. They couldn't get off the island, and you were stuck on this island mining. 
So something happened where John, and we don't know all the details, but he says right here, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, this is where he was thrown. Church tradition, and be careful with church tradition. It's not in the Bible. Church tradition teaches that they got so upset at John, they couldn't kill him. They wanted to boil him alive in oil. And so they got a big group of people together, and they said, we're going to boil this guy alive in oil. They threw him in the oil, and guess what? He didn't get hurt. So they said, the only way we can get rid of him is just to get rid of him, and they sent him to Patmos. And while he's at Patmos, guess what happens? The Lord says, John, I got something big for you. Now, please just remember real quick, I don't want to get into what we talked about on Sunday, because Sunday we got into the last two Sundays. We got into trials and tribulations. But we talked about the last two Sundays, trials and tribulations, wilderness times, desert times. God purposely allows you to go into those times to teach you, to preach you. We talked about on Sunday how the Bible says that it strips you of everything. It strips you of everyone and everything. So the only thing you have left is Jesus to remind you the only thing you need is Jesus. If you're going through a wilderness time right now, if you're going through a desert time right now, you know how barren and dry it is. The only thing you have is Christ. It was at that barren, dry time that John received the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you right here, right now, no one loves desert times. No one loves wilderness times. But it's a time when the Lord can really speak to you because everything else has gone away. Focus on that and allow the Lord to really use that. Allow that to really be used. Any quick questions, comments here before we go on and we get ready to finish up the chapter here? Okay. Alrighty, verse uh, 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voices of a trumpet saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. That's chapters two and three. We'll get to that next week. Then I returned, excuse me, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. This is where you start getting into a lot of symbolism in this book. A lot of symbolism. And and Revelation is not a book, this is my personal opinion, that you just casually read. There's certain books of the Bible that you can kind of just pick up. You're like, oh, this is just a fun little book to read. Book of Ruth. You know, pretty straightforward there, love story. Book of Jonah, four chapters. Oh, I get it. He ran away, got ate, spit up. And, you know, I get it. Revelation, you get to this passage right here, and if you just try to casually read through it, you're like, I have no idea. Jesus is the funkiest looking thing that's ever existed. Because he has white hair, feet of brass, fire eyes. It's all symbolic. Now, I'm going to just tell you right now, and as we go through the book of Revelation, I will try to be fair and talk about different views that people have. Because this book, there's so many different views. I have met somebody who thinks this is really what Jesus looks like. I hope he doesn't. I hope it's symbolic. Let's see what the symbolism is. I turned and see, and the first thing I see is seven golden lampstands. Now, there's a lot with the seven golden lampstands. Always let the Bible be its own commentary. Please jump ahead to verse 20, same chapter. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. All right, Jesus, thanks for telling me. So... What can we deal then with this idea of lampstands? Okay, think like the Old Testament. Back in Exodus chapter 25, when you walked into the temple or the tabernacle, you know, you would walk past the, the altar where the animals were sacrificed. You'd walk past the laver to be washed. And when you finally walked into the tabernacle or the temple, you would have incense there. You would have showbread there. You had something that we commonly call the menorah. 
right there. Now, this, this tabernacle would have been dark. That menorah is the only light. The only light. And the menorah had three things on each side and one in the middle. A total of seven. So there's a neat sim- symbolism there as well. It's the idea that we're supposed to be the light of the world. If you follow the gospel, it counts as this. Jesus says, first off, he says, I'm the light of the world. Then later on in the gospels, he says, hey, the light of the world won't be with you forever. And then a third reference, he comes back and says, guess what? You're the light of the world. So when Jesus ascended, he said, I'm giving this role to you. Go be the light of the world. We sing the song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Well, that's what he's saying. Go shine. Shine at home. Shine at work. How do you defeat darkness? You turn the light on. You don't defeat darkness with more darkness. You don't yell at darkness. You don't scream at darkness. If you go into a dark room, you defeat darkness by flipping on the light. And when you turn on the light, what does the Bible say? The darkness must flee. I see so many believers trying to defeat darkness in their life or darkness at work or darkness at home. I don't know with this long, drawn-out whatever. Just defeat darkness with light. Jesus is the light. The more I study Christ, I realize it's Jesus. I had a pastor friend one time say, hey, listen. He goes, goes, I believe in what's called a one-step program. That one step is Jesus Christ. He's the light. He takes the darkness away. And I think sometimes we have a tendency as as churches and as bodies of believers, we focus so much on what is wrong, and we want to just rehash the darkness in our life. Jesus says, ah, let's just talk about light. I'm the light, and the light dispels the darkness. So the seven golden lampstands, seven again, the completion there of us being light. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite phrase for himself, Son of Man. Not Son of David. Not son of God, son of man. I'm one of you guys. I'm equal with you. Clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Now, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm just going to give you the references. Exodus 29, Exodus 39. Exodus 29, Exodus 39. The priests wore outfits like this, and they wore bands across. Beautiful, different colors. They took actual gold and threaded it in. Now, once again, you're reading this from an American perspective 2,000 years later. If you were reading this from a Jewish perspective 2,000 years ago, as soon as you saw this idea of seven golden lampstands, you would think of, oh yeah, the temple, the light. You would read the golden band across them. Oh yeah, that's what the priests wear. I've seen the priest, they got the golden band right across their chest. What's Jesus saying? I'm your priest. I'm the one that took care of the sacrifice for your sins. I'm the one that's going to represent you to God. I'm the one that's going to bridge the gap. I am your priest. Verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. What would they think of? Well, I think they would go back to Isaiah where it says that your sins were like a scarlet. They shall become as white as... Snow. I think they would think back to Daniel chapter 7, where the Ancient of Days is described exactly like this. Head and hair white. When you think of white hair, what do you think of? Somebody older. When you think of white, what do you think of? Something pure. Jesus, who is, who was, and who is to come, has always existed. He is, as according to Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days. He is also pure, sinless, as white as snow. Next one, his eyes like a flame of fire. Anytime you see fire in the Bible, it speaks of judgment. 
His eyes are the ones that will judge us. So his eyes are going to look in the Lamb's book of life. We'll get to this in Revelation 20. And if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, you're in, you're saved, amen. But if your name's not in the Lamb's book of life, he's going to bring out the great right throw judgment book of works. And his eyes are going to read those and going to look at your works and say, okay, do you think you can earn salvation by doing enough good? Let's talk about this. His eyes see everything. His eyes see my actions, words, etc. But even that, his eyes see in me my motives. So when I sit here and I'm good at faking it, Jesus says, I see the real heart. I see the real attitude. See, his eyes are like eyes, like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Furnace, something that's been tested, something that's been through the heat. Jesus went to the cross. He's been tested. Thinks back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, that where there were three men in the furnace, but when Nebuchadnezzar looked, he says, I see four. And I see one looking like what? Son of man. Jesus has been in the furnace with us. If you're in a difficult time right now, you feel like you're in the furnace, Jesus is with you. Fine brass from a Jewish perspective. When you think of the idea of fine brass, you would think of, hey, the temple, the tabernacle. First thing I see when I walk into the temple and tabernacle is the altar of sacrifice that's made of fine brass. Jesus is my sacrifice. His voice is like the sound of many waters. If you've ever heard Powerful, gushing water. It is just, it's loud. It's powerful. The authority of Christ. He has in his hand, right hand, seven stars. We already read verse 20. He already told us what those are. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword. He speaks the word of God. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. At the end of the book of Revelation, makes it clear to note there is no sun in heaven. You don't need a sun in heaven when the Lamb of God is the sun. S-U-N. So you look at this beautiful description of Jesus, it's all symbolic. And to really understand it, you got to get into the law, you got to get into Old Testament prophecy, you got to get into all this. And it's an amazing, amazing picture. And if, and if time would have permitted us, it would be great to go to all the passage there yourself, my, ourselves, but I want to at least give you the reference. So John's only response to this, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. This is going to happen a lot in the book of Revelation. In fact, in the Bible... Most every time someone saw anything angelic or amazing, they fainted and fell down. Great men of God like Daniel just fell down flat. It's so awe-inspiring. We can't even imagine it. You know, when Paul died and went to what is called the third heaven, went to heaven, he came back and said, listen, words can't even talk about it. He actually said it would be sinful to try to talk about it. It is so amazing, so wonderful, that if I take my mere human words and try to describe to you heaven or try to describe to you God, I'm doing it in injustice and it's a sin. Think about that. That's how amazing this is. He laid his right hand on me saying to me, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am he who lives and who was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen. This is your outline now for the book of Revelation. Write the things which you have seen. Chapter 1, the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, and the things which will take place after this, chapter 4. So that's your outline. The things that which are, chapter 1, the things which will, excuse me, the things that you have seen, chapter 1, the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, and the things which will take place after this, chapter 4 on. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches there. 
the angels there or the messengers. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches, which takes us right into next week as we get into the different seven churches. And it's a great study on what those seven churches mean and what they represent. There's a lot of symbolism in this book. There's a lot of neat references. I hope you write down those references. Go home, pray over them, read over them, study them, and really get a picture because this book is supposed to be the unveiling the revealing of who Jesus Christ is. And when you understand who he is, I hope it changes you. Changes you, obviously, ultimately, eternally for salvation, but also changes in how you live your life. So when you go home tonight and things aren't perfect, you stop and you say, grace and peace of Christ, I have eternity. When you go to work tomorrow and it doesn't go well, you stop and you say, wait a second. This is a light momentary affliction. My Savior has piercing fire eyes and feet of brass i got nothing to worry about. And he loved me and washed me in his blood. Oh, man, that changes everything. Any final questions, comments about anything here before we close up? Marcus. When we get to that next week, I, what I'm, the way I'm going to teach that is this, is I believe that it shows a, a period of history, which we're actually talking about, And I think it's also going to show the historical nature of the church. That's what we're going to talk about. And I think also, if you would look at almost any church today, they're one of the seven today. I think they're symbolic. So we could take Harvest Fellowship, we could take whatever churches are around here, look at one of these seven churches and say, yeah, that's us. So the way we're going to approach it next week is literal churches that existed, symbolic of church history, and also churches that exist today. So if you're asking, are there churches like Laodicea still around, Smyrna around, Thyatira, etc.? Is that what you're kind of asking? Some of them are still over there. Some of them aren't. You know, some of these towns still exist. Some of them have been lost to history and lost to time. But there are still some that are over there. If you look at the present-day map of Asia Minor. Anybody else got anything here before we close up? John. I mean, I... I've never really looked at it from that way because he's talking about them as a group and he's talking specifically about certain issues and problems they're having. I mean, I think as an individual, you can take most any spiritual reference of a scripture and say, how can I apply it to me? But he seems to be talking about certain people groups with this. So I'm glad chapter one was so amazing that we just want to talk about chapters two and three. So that's like, you guys like, yeah, who cares about chapter one? But chapter two... Anybody else have anything here before we close up? All right, let's pray. Can you guys stand with me, please? Lord, as we learn about your unveiling, as we learn about who you are, help it to not just be something we mark, we underline, and we think, oh, that's neat. Lord, life-changing. Life-changing on what we do and what we say. Help us to think about eternity and heaven and hell and every interaction we run into to be prayed up and spirit-led to say, Lord... Here am I, send me. If you want me to talk, I'm available, Lord. Lord, help us to have that heart and that mindset of eternity. And as we go through this book, I pray you would give us a heart for the lost, a heart that's caught up in false religion and cults, a heart for those that are denying you, because we see the reality of what's coming. Lord, we love you. We love your gospel, your grace, your mercy, your peace. Help us to walk in that. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. Hey, if anybody has anything they want to pray about, I'll hang out up here for a while, pray. You guys have a good week, and God bless.